Good morning. This is Fresh Art International, and I'm Kathy Bird. Today's show on Jolt Radio in Miami is about sound. I'm a sound collector, you see, uh, have been for years, and I'm thinking about sharing with you the contrast between our everyday surround soundscape, ambient sounds, the sounds of celebrations, the sounds of change. Some of the sounds we might not notice right at first, some are people's complete preoccupation. And today's show will feature sound artist Stephen Vitiello in a conversation I recorded with him for a podcast episode a couple of years ago. It will also feature sound and performance art, sound related to performance art brought to Miami Beach during Art Week 2016, and then sounds of today, what's happening in downtown Miami. Let's begin with Stephen Vitiello. He's a sound artist who's done residencies around the world. What he's known for, and you'll be hearing, I want you to be listening out for this, is a 2010 piece called A Bell for Every Minute that he produced and was played on the High Line. It was played at MoMA. And also for a more chilling experience he had as a resident of the World Trade Center, believe it or not, they had an artist residency in one of the towers. He recorded in 1999 the winds after Hurricane Floyd. And now we listen to them, they have an eerie quality. So let's hear from Stephen Vitiello. Today I spoke on Skype with Stephen Vitiello. Stephen is an electronic musician and sound artist who transforms atmospheric noises into soundscapes. One of his installations is now featured in Soundings, a contemporary score at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Curated by Barbara London, this is MoMA's first ever exhibition dedicated exclusively to sound art. A lot of museums have been exhibiting sound art, and why is it suddenly in the news? Because it's a Museum of Modern Art that puts a much larger stamp of validation on it. It also puts it under a microscope. So even the little bits of press that I was looking at today are already questioning, well, is it really all that good, you know? And, um, or is it going to succeed or fail or, well, you know, and, and it's kind of what happens with major surveys, you know, even like the Whitney Biennial, people are usually ready to knock it down before they even take it all in. But I think, you know, the survey shows, I mean, ideally sound art will infiltrate the art world and just the way that you have a, a, a large group exhibition and there might be a video work or there might be two video works. My wish is that in the future there will be a sound work rather than sound art often getting bunched into these shows where it's all work about the, t- you know, that has the common technology of sound but is not necessarily thematically connected now installed in MoMA's Sculpture Garden, A Bell for Every Minute was originally commissioned in 2010 for a year-long installation on the High Line in New York. I loved how you described it as a cultural soundscape when it all comes together. Tell me about that. It's a piece that was on the High Line from, for, one, I think, one day less than a year, from 2010 to 2011, and it was made for the High Line. You know, to describe the piece quickly, what I did was recorded bells, all over, every bell I could think of, and people at Creative Time helped me think of other bells. And then I chose 59 of them. And at the beginning of the hour, all the bells ring together so that Boots, the cat's bell rings at the same time as the synagogue, as the same time as the Hare Krishna temple bell, as you know, um, the, the New York Stock Exchange. They're all ringing together on one even plane, and then after that, one bell rings each minute individually. And there's a, a aluminum five foot by four foot sound map that's engraved that traces what you hear on each minute, and also 
you can kind of follow to where I recorded it. So your installation at MoMA will be Mm -hmm. outdoors, I understood. It is. Yeah, the rest of the exhibition is on the third floor. You know, it's not a piece that belongs in a black box. I, I make other pieces that, you know, where I want to kind of put you in that kind of immersive space. But this piece of Bell for Every Minute, it really should it kind of be in harmony in concert with the city. So I asked for the sculpture garden. So there's five speakers out in the sculpture garden and the sound map. For the High Line, Stephen created a public art experience with sounds ranging from a tinkling cat's collar to the clang of the New York Stock Exchange. There's the people who go and they know what they're going for. And then there's other people who just sort of stumble upon it and may be surprised about kind of reorienting their senses so that they're listening rather than looking and sometimes find that they can listen for a much longer time than they might have looked if they were just going to stand in front of a, a single work of art. I can see that would be the case for the Highline installation. It's interesting, you know, sometimes I get feedback like, Somebody emailed me who I didn't know who said that they jogged there every day. And it took them a few days to notice even that they'd notice these bells. And then they stopped and they read the sign and they started to look forward to, as I run by there, you know, each day, what am I going to hear tomorrow? Uh, Then somebody sent me a a novel, um, like a Wall Street thriller in which the the character goes uh, and he says, and then he went up onto the high line to listen to his favorite work of art, a bell for every minute. (laughs) One of the beauties of going into larger public spaces is that you do open yourself up to a wider audience and sometimes an audience that you can catch by surprise. Um, I got a larger audience for that piece and probably anything I've ever done. And the appreciation is something that surprised me because it came from children. It came from joggers. It came from art people. It came from grandmas and, and it seemed that the bells could speak to them. It didn't have to be my language. It didn't have to be an art language or a, an academic or a conceptual thing, they could interpret it in any number of ways, and it was meaningful, which is great. What you just heard was Stephen's 1999 recording of Winds after Hurricane Floyd. That year, he was artist-in-residence on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center. That's the piece that ended up being, I guess, representing that, that whole residency. Was It's called World Trade Center Recordings, Winds After Hurricane Floyd. Um, and it was, was right, it was second strongest hurricane to hit New York in the decade. We couldn't go in the building during the hurricane, but the morning after it peaked, I went in and there was a term that I was told was called weeping in architecture, but the building was still so wet and the winds were still strong enough that it really felt very, you felt the physicality of movement and you also heard it. And in that work, the recording of mine, it, it's often said that the building sounds like an old you know, ship kind of creaking and cracking in the wind. That's a haunting thought, really. It is, and it's, you know, it, it wasn't until I could hear up there that I became a little afraid of heights. It, everything felt very artificial until I got those microphones working. And then once you got the microphones working, you realized you were on the 91st floor and you were way up above, you know, in some cases above the clouds, up above planes and helicopters, definitely above people. And there was a real vulnerability and fragility of being there. I mean, that, I'm not saying that in any way had anything to do with predicting the, the terrible things that came, but it just, just the physicality of being becomes much more, I think, sensitized when you can hear. You became aware that the building was actually a fragile being. In a exactly, way. exactly. And I was often there you know, at night. It was, I don't know how many thousands of people occupy the World Trade Center. So it's not to say that I was alone, but in many ways I did feel alone because 
I was in isolated in my studio. Most of the building's lights were off. And that fragility was kind of amplified by that feeling of just being in this weird little black box studio, looking out over the city. During his 2013 residency at Robert Rauschenberg's island home on Captiva in Florida, Stephen made a profound discovery. Rauschenberg had recorded sound too, with cassette recorders and an underwater microphone. I used my own audio recorders and microphones, but I sort of touched his things and just loved being able to open up a closet and go, wow, there's Robert Rauschenberg's cassette recorders. And I'd open up another drawer and there were these underwater speakers that were not fully functional, but even dreamed of using my underwater microphone and his his underwater speaker. And now you have maybe an awareness of what your own artifacts are going to be. I think that's true. And one of my many backgrounds was working as an archivist. and, And while I was in New York, I worked for Electronic Arts Intermix, which is a video art distributor. I worked for The Kitchen as an archivist. I worked for Namjoon Paik over 12 years in all sorts of capacities. And I'm not ever going to claim to put myself on that plane of, of some of the artists I've worked with, but I do, I do try to value the work that I do and keeping track of it, keeping good records, keeping formats, um, migrated you know i mean even going back to that world trade center piece the whitney bought it in 2002 and i came in and i handed them a dvd disc and they said oh this was 2002 but they said we don't accept digital digital media for acquisitions and i said but it is a digital work and we had to then negotiate well what are you going to get and the format i was giving them DVD audio is actually now an obsolete format. So I also gave them data backup of the files uh, that make up the six channels of that work. And it it made me think for future acquisitions as other people bought pieces or I wish other people would buy pieces, you know, who, who's going to take care of them? What are they allowed to do? What kind of backup files uh, or even equipment should go with the piece? you said that you are emotionally attached to sound. What do you mean by that? You know, in film, for example, a lot of the emotional content is often created with sound. You could take a scene and make it happy, scary, sexy, sad by changing the soundtrack. And I found that it's the connection I have to the world is a lot of feeling that I feel comes through listening. Um, the physical impact of sound is very emotional to me. I've found that in installations that I can really play with the kind of the psyche of the visitor, at least play to it by the manipulation of sound in space. And that, if it's done right, you, you'll end up feeling first and, and thinking second. I think that with visual art, you often look, you kind of intellectually process, and then you might be moved or not. With sound, I think it's the opposite. You sort of, that feeling hits you physically, the vibrations of sound into your body, and then maybe you process what you're thinking. But it's just, I don't, I don't have a super visual eye the way so many of my friends do. I don't always notice colors or design problems, but I do listen first and look second. If you close your eyes, sound does suddenly seem much louder and richer and more finely detailed. Probably my favorite photograph that represents my work that I have is from Australia. And I told a group of school children uh, who I kind of underestimated their, their, real brilliance and their sensitivity. But I, you know, at first I just thought I'd tell them a little and I'd go send them into my installation. But I, I said, you know, if you could close your eyes when you get in there, tell me if you hear the piece differently. And then they had all sorts of questions that were incredible questions. But there, someone later gave me a photograph of one of the girls in the class with her eyes closed, listening to the piece. And it seemed like she was listening with her entire 
her entire being. And that picture makes me feel like I've done something for one moment that mattered. That was an excerpt from The Sound of Red Earth, a 2010 site-specific work created by Stephen Vitiello in Australia. You can read more about Stephen and sound art on freshartinternational.com. We have a Facebook page, and I tweet every day at freshartintl. Now how about one last sound? Glass bells that Stephen played in a MoMA Sculpture Garden performance this August. You were just listening to a podcast that I recorded with Stephen Vitiello a few years ago, and the the work still just sends me. I love it. I love listening to the the projects that he creates. We're on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. This is Fresh Art International. And now I want to share some sounds that I collected during Miami Beach this month uh, at Art Week. Tied by Side was the first event that we attended, and we actually did a show with uh, curator Ta- Claire Toncon and Marinella Senatori, an artist who was doing part of, had part of her team working on this processional. And it was celebrating the opening of the Faena Art District. In the sounds we captured, you'll hear the warm-up of a local percussive group called the Haitian Raura Band for the School of Narrative Dance Miami. That's Marinella Senatori's project. You'll hear a giant piñata processional created by Carlos Betancourt. And lastly, you'll hear the brass band that introduced Antony Miralda's Global Banquet that was brought to those who came to see the processional. Let's hear what they had to show us.
yes, there's one street sweeper with a handmade broom cleaning up the confetti off the street, metaphorically. That was really cool performance sound by a Haitian rara band, a giant piñata exploding, excuse me, exploding in the street, and a brass band that introduced an artist project who was meant to be feeding the masses that came to this processional. Also, while I was there at Tide by Side, I was super lucky to meet Yosvani Terry. He's an internationally acclaimed Cuban musician, composer, saxophonist, percussionist, band leader, and educator. And he is the composer of the sound of the conga irreversible. Irreversible. I think I pronounced that with a French accent the first time. That was dreamed up by Los Carpinteros. This was a performance project where dancers dressed in black danced the conga backwards heading north on Collins Avenue. I was introduced to Yosvani in the street, and he was happy to tell me the story of this music. I love visual arts, but uh, there's something special here. It's like I've known them, and especially Marcos Castillo, since we were in fifth grade. We went to school together. We went through all the entire um, art uh, art studies. Uh, of course, he was in visual art, and I was in music and saxophone. And uh, we both arrived in Havana at the same time, and we're doing a lot of things. And um, my instrument is saxophone. I'm a saxophone player and composer. And, you know, I'm coming from a family of musicians. My father is one of the Cuban legends uh, within the Cuban popular music. Uh, but I was already, I moved to New York in 1999. And it was not until three years ago that I went to Havana. And they, they approached me because they have this idea of making this uh, very unique piece. Uh, at the time, it didn't have any names, and uh, they explained me the whole concept of it, in which they wanted the dancers being dancing backwards, and they wanted to have a music composed to it that it would give an effect that would accompany the the, the dancer, the choreography. So we met there for several times, and 
it was good because you know we discussed and and and, and developed the concept of it, and then I went on my own and and produced the musical sound of it. And for me, it was really interesting from the very beginning because it was a challenge. It was like trying to have 16 dance couple dancing backward. Now, the big challenge was that being carnival music, something that is very popular and massive, the challenge was like the music needed to groove, needed to have a groove for them to dance. I just couldn't arrive with something like experimental, John Cage type of that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't really... Uh, serve the purpose of, of the music. So, so what was the solution? The solution was, a, you know, go home and study, and study also the the music that preceded all of the carnivals in Cuba, and then figured out ways with the, you know all the musical tools that the composer have at his disposal to create the sound for this piece. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. This is the Fresh Art International Show on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. You were just listening to sounds from Tide by Side in the Faena Art District of Miami Beach and my conversation with Yosvani Terry, a really important composer, jazz musician, who's now teaching on the faculty at Harvard, head of the jazz department. So watch that guy go. I'm now about to talk about the music side of sound and here with me in the studio today is Miami-based artist Monica McGivern. Welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Really happy to have you here because I've, I've known you for years in so many of the roles you've played in Miami. That's true. And uh, Monica's just covered tons of the elements of the art scene in Miami. She studied photography, and her documentary photography in Miami has encompassed contemporary artists, musicians, and social issues. And Monica, you grew up in a musical family, right? <laughs> it's true. Um, I, I grew up um, choosing to play a low brass instrument because that is the instrument my mother played throughout uh, her high school years. And um, so I took after her in that way. And uh, also on the father's side of the family, he was one of 10 children, 10 Polish children who uh, were forced at a young age to all take accordion lessons. So a little bit of music in the, in the family that uh, instilled that sense in me. Well, Monica, you were one of the women artists performing during the opening of Ground Control, Art Basel, Miami Beaches. 2016 public art installation in Collins Park, yes. and I, I thought I'd have you here now uh, to talk about what took place that night. Um, before we talk about this amazing project called Composition 18 that was directed by artist Nama Sabar, I'll tell you that this public art installation this year was inspired by David Bowie, the whole project called Ground Control. Yes. And Nicholas Baum, uh, who directs the Public Art Fund in New York City, curated this, and it was his last year to curate. Oh, uh, we were so lucky to be a part of it. Yes. Um, a performance in Collins Park, that beautiful that beautiful park in front of the Bass Museum, um, and, yes. That stares out mm -hmm. this long column of green that stares out at the ocean and the yes. palm trees. It's it's perfectly situated. And this project by Nama Sabar, she described for us on my show two weeks ago. She indicated that the composition included 18 female musicians, three compositions with the same structure. <clears throat> The same four chords, same beats per minute, same musical scale mm -hmm. for the singing. Let's describe how it looked, Monica. <laughs> well, we were each standing on our amps, um, 18 of us spaced out um, in, in sort of a, a rectangular grid-like pattern. So each one of us were facing outward as well. So we're not looking at each other, which is actually... Uh, 
I a musical practice that if you are playing uh, in groups, it's it was actually suggested to me in my earlier music days playing the low brass instrument that I referred to the baritone earlier. Um, that when you're you're in a group to turn away from each other and play is a much different experience for some reason energetically the the energy shifts so it it forces you to listen a lot more to each other and for i you know perhaps that wasn't nama's intent maybe it was just aesthetics i don't know i don't want to you know speak for her but for me that was the experience as a performer shifting the energy outward almost towards an, an infinite expression of that sound we're going to be listening to what i'll calling the second movement Mm -hmm. of Composition 18. I recorded it per Nama's invitation while walking around amongst the instruments. You'll hear an unevenness to the experience. I think it's an interesting Mm -hmm. uh, way of participating in a performance. Yes, um, this actually allows the viewer the experience of choosing and and just like a choose your own adventure book as if you were reading it's kind of like a choose your own sound experience how do you how does the viewer want to experience through choosing to walk through and blend the sounds or isolate the sounds based on how far or close they are in in the field of sound so let's hear it
Okay, so now we come to your section, yes. Monica. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Tell- you can hear how fun that was. People were yes. having fun, yes, <laughs> for sure. And I'm wondering, uh, let's describe your instrument. Mm-hmm. What what were you playing? So I was playing a bass guitar. Um, it's aesthetically, they call it a Beatles bass. What Paul Paul McCartney used was that style of bass guitar. And I must say, uh, Monica is a very elegant dresser when she performs. So accordingly, without knowing, maybe, or with knowing, she was the foreground of several photos I took that in the background showed Ugo Rondinoni's Miami Mountain, which is a psychedelic stack of boulders. Yes. And Monica's top... Yeah. matched the <laughs> sculpture had... so it looked super dramatic yes it was almost exactly the same colors I that wasn't with intent um you know just one of those things that you put on that you feel good about wearing and you feel confident in so it was perhaps I don't know um made for great pictures <laughs> do you want to tell us a little about what what you were playing what you what we're going to be hearing so what I was hearing, or what I was playing, rather, um, was as directed by Nama Savar, the artist of the piece Composition 18. Um, I was playing a drone part, which is a, a, a very kind of at times fast. Um, I was directed by her to play as if thinking about the wind. And in that way... Um, the sound becomes almost unrhythmic, but hypnotizing in in its playing. Okay, let's hear it then. Mm-hmm.
So Monica, how did that sound? <laughs> I I thought it sounded great. It was it was such a beautiful experience for you. Uh, you had sent that clip for me to listen to, and that was actually the first time that I had gotten to just sit down and receive the sound um, in such a, a fashion. You know, when you're performing, it's it's a different way. It's it's a kinesthetic listening that you're doing because you're also you know going through the movements. So to just sit and receive the sound is a beautiful experience, and I can only imagine that's why uh, people were just spontaneously laying down on the ground in the grass in that beautiful green park and just laying and um, receiving that sound bath. Well, you've had another kind of bath in a way (laughs) in the last year as a resident, an immersion in downtown Miami. Yes. At the corner of 10th and North Miami Avenue. An immersion of sounds and a, a field of sounds of in, in much different, sometimes jarring ways. And uh, visual experiences too, right? As, as well, yes. Let's okay. describe the neighborhood itself <laughs> just when you moved in. At the time you moved in, like, how did sure. it feel? Um, I Well, it's... It's an interesting situation um, being in the inside of this art residency is, I like to jokingly call it the IKEA social experiment, which is, it's uh, almost the white wall gallery experience, the very modern uh, minimalist type vibe. And looking out the window, you see visually exactly what you were alluding to, uh, the grit more of the grit of the Miami experience that um, is not always advertised in the uh, the marketing and branding of this city, uh, but it is there, and which is why I felt it was important to document visually. Um, more of the the yeah again the the dirt on the streets, um, the the authentic Miami experience, passing by homeless people asking you for money on your way to parking your car in the street. Um, it's it's a different layer of Miami. I know um, we tell the situation of this residency. It, it was once known as the Cannonball Residency Program, and the last year it was taken on by the Art Center South Florida and yes. has a space for artists selected that live there for mm-hmm. a few months up to a year, depending on their project. Correct. And you have been collecting for your residency project mm-hmm. a visual narrative. Let's Correct. describe what your visual narrative is. Correct. So I, as a, a documentary photographer, I feel like I've, I've been documenting a language through light, right? That... Photographers tend to look at. So, being in this environment, I was I was looking for the light and how it played in these gritty moments in the streets of Miami. So there was a lot of construction. Uh, the city in that area is is being deconstructed and reconstructed in a very fast pace. Um, so I felt the buildings coming down were were a very large character in my foot photography. So you've, I'm saying, just rewording something I read, you wrote, a visual narrative at the intersection of homelessness, gentrification, deconstruct, deconstruction, and development. So let's look at a couple of mm-hmm. your photos. Sure. Uh, I think a lot of people think you can't talk about art on the radio, but I've shown that you can every week. That's true. <laughs> but this time, I think it'd be kind of cool to look at a couple of the photos. The first one that I want to talk about is the everyday observers of downtown's life, which are the birds. Yes. <laughs> well, I first noticed, again, as a building was being pulled down, there was uh, this little sparrow that at the same time was coming back and, and perched with a twig in its mouth, kind of watching just as I was, his nest being pulled and teared down by by this this uh, large uh, crane. And um, I, it just gave me the, the really, you know, connection with that bird. It's 
perspective of watching these things in the city. And so that began to direct my attention to more of the birds and what, what they were doing as watchers. Right. And I think it's important to note that these photos are black and white photos. Correct. And you chose black and white for a reason. Correct. Um, yeah, there's there's something about an, an archival perspective of just um, formalizing the moment in a very uh, traditional photojournalist telling of the news, you know, the hard news, the edgy news, um, and, and capturing it in that way, a traditional photojournalism editorial style. And there's one photo you showed me last week that was quite disturbing that pictures a man lying on the street with cars driving by. He's in the middle of the street. It's true. So this was this was a scene that um, I, I woke up to, and I woke up uh, because of the, the numerous amounts of horns honking. And so I went to the window, you know, kind of blurry-eyed and looking out in the street, and, and unbelievably, there was a man um, laying there, not moving. And for about 20 minutes, I watched this procession of these cars continuing to drive by, the motors, um, you know, of course, they would slow down. But no one, no one got out, no one stopped, no one even <laughs> rolled down a window to see if he was okay, right? Um, I could see that the ambulances were about to attend to him after some time. and um, Do you think that's a, a fact of life in that particular neighborhood where people driving through don't feel safe to stop? That's a potential perspective, absolutely. Um, I, I, the times, you know, that I have been out on the corner, you know, taking pictures of the construction and, and things like that, I've, I've heard many times, um, you know, be careful. And people warning me, be careful, this is a, a dangerous place, you know. So it's it's possibly a good perspective. I'd love to, to share now the sounds that you've collected okay. from your experience, mm -hmm. everyday experience of sure. living at the corner of 10th and North Miami Avenue. So that was Monica's Everyday downtown, and there are some sounds you've been collecting that are disturbing to you, and I've seen them in your photos, mm -hmm. and I also want to know, like, mm -hmm. why are they disturbing you when you <laughs> hear the sounds of change 
physical mm-hmm. change. Maybe we should listen to the sounds first and you talk about the emotions that okay. they spark. Okay. okay. say that's the opposite of the sound of a celebration. <laughs> I would say so. What's your feeling about what's going on? What did we just hear? So these sounds, um, you know, pretty, pretty much a blend of the city. And, and I guess I, the, the reason why I feel it's, it's so disturbing, um, I, I can use the example of a siren, for example. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I would say at the beginning of the residency, I would notice that a siren go, would go off and I, I would kind of be put on edge, as alarms tend to do. But as I realized that the, the blend of these sounds, um, I would hear the siren towards the, the latter end of this year and it doesn't alarm me. And so I guess those being around all of these, these blends of sounds and almost it becoming the new normal and the normalization of these sounds and... Um, it's it's just disturbing to me that that we can absorb all of this movement and and not really process it in a way, but we we feel it, and it, it, there's a tension and and if you're not recognizing it, there's a part of you that's like not recognizing that this is becoming the new normal. That is what is disturbing to me that that you can be embedded in around all this tension and be absorbing it, but not being able to name it. So what do you hope people see in this work? <laughs> what are you communicating that you want them to see? Mm-hmm. Well, from the archival standpoint of, you know, just simply this is all happening so fast. And and again, the normalization and, and this new normal, <clears throat> it's happening a lot of times before you can even process it. And so for me, taking photographs of it is, is a bit of proof that that I was here, I was in this place, and and the city looked like this at this particular time in its simplest form. And I don't have answers to a lot of those questions, but for me, feeling like I am experiencing this and I can't process it, the only way I know how to express it is to 
put it into physical form through photography or through documentation of the sound of it. Well, I really think it's really interesting and important work. Mm -hmm. And it's quiet work, and I don't, <laughs> it's not quiet in every regard. <laughs> but I would love to share with our listeners where, where can they go to learn more about your work? Sure. Um, my website, monicaparty.com, <laughs> would be a good start to see what I'm doing. And uh, on, on the fun side of, of what I'm doing, I do have um, a personal band project. And we're called Mo Booty, Mo apostrophe booty, B-O-O-T-Y. And that can be looked up on Instagram, uh, Facebook, social media. And that is a three-piece band that I've been working on with collaborator Alexander Merbouti. And uh, we started out with drummer Danny Kaye and now playing with Cody Mentilis on drums. I'd love to share one of the sounds mm -hmm. of your band with okay. our group for a going out party okay. here. Sounds good. <laughs> on the Monica Party Show. Yes. <laughs> it's Dano, an original song written and recorded by Alexandre Melbouti and performed by Alexandre on guitar, Monica on bass, and Danny Kaye on drums. Just been listening to Dano, an original song performance by Mo Booty Band, and I've had here in the studio with me today, my great pleasure, Monica McGivern. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Just want to say um, I I love uh, what you're doing in the city um, and bringing this sort of art curation, learning how to speak about art on the radio and bringing it to an international audience. So thank you so much for having me. And uh, just a, a shout out to Jolt Radio for having us here as well. Uh, for all the dedicated Jolt Radio people, uh, that song was actually premiered uh, way back at the beginning of this year 
and we premiered that song here. So it's so nice to have that time lapse to see what has unfolded in that year. And uh, Fresh Art International looping into it is just such a good feeling. Yes, and we can thank Mr. Jolt himself, John Kenyer, <laughs> for making this show about sound sound so good. <laughs> Thank you, Thank John. You. Yeah. This is Fresh Art International, and I'm Kathy Bird. Thank you for joining us on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. Meet me here each Wednesday for more contemporary art talk.